Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today on the show, we have Matt Stoller. He's a fellow at the Open Markets Institute and the author of a new book. It's called Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy. Matt, welcome to Building Local Power. Thanks for having me. We, we, your work is amazing, and so I'm just really happy to be here. That's great. Yeah, I, you, you do great work, too. You're one of my favorite followers on Twitter, and of course, Open Markets is a longtime friend and ally of, uh, of ILSRs. Um, so the book is terrific, and I, I, I wanted to get you on early as it's just coming out um, to make sure that our listeners uh, heard about it, because I think it's really one of the great worthwhile reads out there. There's so much in this book that we could we could talk about. You, you start at the beginning of the 20th century and take us right through to today. In thinking about how to approach this conversation, I think I want to take it in two parts. So I want to start first by just zeroing in on a, uh, on a few key periods in that history and asking you to tell us a little bit about what was going on. And then I want to step back and ask you a few questions about some of the broader themes and issues that the book raises and what they, you know, how we should think about those in, in, the, in the context of the, of the current moment. Um, so the, the first period that I want to start with is the 1920s. You know, this is a period that I think is kind of, you know, in popular imagination, it's sort of the go-go 20s, you know, flappers, it's roaring economic times, supposedly. But you write that it's actually quite a dark decade, that a lot of people aren't doing very well at all. Um, fascism is very much in the air, not just in Europe, but, but here. There are academics who are saying that democracy doesn't really work and we should we should get rid of it. And there's a, this powerful figure uh, who really encapsulates a lot of what is going on in this decade and who's very much a villain in your book, Andrew Mellon. So tell us, who was Andrew Mellon and, and what was going on in the 1920s? Uh, Andrew Mellon is one of the great and today unknown villains of American history and totally a fascinating guy. So he was the Secretary of the Treasury from 1921 to 1932 in, I think, what we know of as, as you are right, it's the sort of the roaring 20s. And uh, he was also one of the richest men in the country. He was probably second or third wealthiest, and he owned the equivalent of three Fortune 500 companies. Um, the, the most, the one you'd know of today would be Chevron, um, but he also owned... Uh, Alcoa, which at that point was an aluminum monopoly, and aluminum was the kind of one of the key high-tech industries of the decade. It was this new great light metal that could went into aerospace, which was the new sort of you know flying was amazing at the time. And then um, uh, so so he also controlled the network of banks in Pennsylvania. He had interests in you know, in everything from steel to uh, coal to real estate to all these metals and magnesium and just kind of he had his fingers in in the pie everywhere he was a, effectively he was a private equity magnate of the 1920s and then he also became the secretary of the treasury which gave him public power as well so so adding to his immense private power he had uh he had the he controlled the treasury he also controlled the uh, the nascent taxing bureaucracy with the IRS at the time it was called the Bureau of Revenue and that had just been set up really uh, a lot of the, the the income tax had just been set up in 1912 or 1913 and so 
you know, and it was really only first used in the, in World War One to tax corporations and to, to tax the wealthy. And so he then structured all of the legal decisions around, oh, what do we do if we have, you know, some sort of, of tax loophole or tax problem? And he was giving himself massive tax rebates and also a whole bunch of others kind of business leaders and stuff, tax rebates. And then um, there was huge battles between him and, and the senators over – publicly releasing tax records uh, to embarrass people, vindictiveness around political uh, opponents. And then the the other thing he did is the portfolio that he controlled is he was the, at the time, the Federal Reserve was structured differently. So he was actually also the chair of the Federal Reserve, right? So one of the, basically the richest guy in the country, or maybe behind John D. Rockefeller, uh, who controlled huge swaths of certainly the heavy industry in Pittsburgh, which was the main kind of place where we constructed things. Then he also had all of these governing portfolios. He was so powerful. And and he kind of, um, that decade was, you know, there had been 20 years of, of an attempt at, at reformism, really from 1901, which was when Teddy Roosevelt became president, all the way up to 1920, which was the end of the Wilson administration. And so you saw, you know, this attempt was called the, the new nationalism, which was Roosevelt's frame to really contain corporate power. And then you saw Wilson, who who brought what was called the New Freedom and a, a Brandeisian frame to try to construct uh, kind of public controls on concentrated capital. And then you saw World War One, which was this massive, massive cultural and political and economic shock. I mean, when World War One started, the stock market in the U.S. shut down for six months. I mean, it was just this unbelievable, it, it's hard to even describe what it did to the country and the world. And by 1920, all of this energy for reform and World War One, you know, Wilson was like, we're going to take our reforms that we're doing domestically and we're going to make them global. We're going to not just attack the concentrated kind of corporate aristocrats here, but we're going to get rid of the actual aristocrats and monarchs in Europe and, and give, you know, self-determination. There was just, just all of this kind of energy for reform. And by the end of the 20s, it was a total disaster. Wilson was on basically his deathbed. Uh, there were the Palmer raids. It was just a you know, there was the government was engaged in basically reigns of terror, the first Red Scare. And so there was this immense and then and then there was a huge boom and bust right in the early 20s. Lots of agricultural depressions um, all over the world. That's when Mussolini first emerged in 1922, 23 and took power in Italy. It's when there was the beer hall putsch with Hitler in Germany. So corporatism, this immense disillusionment of these 20 years of reform and and this world war. Uh, and that's when Walter Lippmann wrote uh, a book basically saying, you know, democracy doesn't work. It's when the U.S. Army uh, a training manual said, you know, democracy leads to all of these problems. There was just this total change and um, disillusionment among the public at large all over the world about whether self-government was even a good way to control all of this industrial power. And in the U.S. you had uh, the, the, it wasn't quite as it wasn't quite as aggressive a turn towards autocratic corporate structures as it was in certain parts of Europe, but it was definitely a turn towards that in the form of of people like Mellon, in the form of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and and then also in the rise of of institutions like the the Second Ku Klux Klan, which was enormously powerful in the 1920s. There were millions of members, and not just in the South, in Portland, Oregon, and Portland, Maine, in 1922. Both mayors were members of the KKK. And the main issue in the 1924 Democratic National Convention, right, and the Democrats had been the party of, of, of kind of anti-monopolism 
uh, under Wilson and William Jennings Bryan had brought that to the party in the 1890s. The main issue in 1924 was 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 prohibition and the KKK. Should they have an endorsement from the KKK or not? Or should sorry, it, it was it was kind of like uh, sort of a approve or not of the KKK. And this was a huge kind of conflict. And so the party of monopoly tore itself to pieces over these kind of social and cultural questions having to do with with xenophobia and extreme racism, really putting corporate power to the side as not really even an issue at all. And so in this decade, you saw you know, huge financial bubbles, both the Florida real estate in 1924-25, where there was, it's just like comical, they were selling land in towns. They were like, you can get land in this amazing Florida town called, I think it was called Nitty, um, and the people were speculating on, on it, and it was like the town actually didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of the, I think, funny things that I found flowing throughout the 20th century is that somehow Florida real estate always plays the dumbest <laughs> right. role. The, Always plays the dumbest role. Um, but anyway, so the 1920s is this fascinating era of just the, these these monopolists who and and um, financiers who were doing incredibly well, and then in the agricultural areas and uh, you know the industrial workers, and then um, the South, like all of these places, the there was a commodities depression. People were doing horribly. So is this period is a lot like today. Uh, in that you had this stark regional inequality, you had stark economic inequality, and you had corruption and self-dealing in a government and and tied to big a big business apparatus and basically a, a public that didn't like it but was just totally disillusioned about the prospects for anything different. Mm-hmm. It does sound incredibly familiar. Um, a lot of echoes to today. So I want to skip ahead to the middle of the 20th century. Um, you know, I think we all have a fairly good understanding of what happens after FDR gets elected. You know, his government really beefs up the anti-monopoly laws and enforcement. We They go after big business, check a lot of corporate power. We have the banking laws that really restructure the banking system and, and put the put banks in their place. We have labor laws uh, that beef up unions and, and, and the right to organize, Social Security, all of these things. I mean, it's a really it's a it's a pretty dramatic change in the basic philosophy of governance and how people think about political economy, and that philosophy really holds for several decades, even even as Republicans are sometimes elected during the, the, those decades. Talk about uh, talk about what the the 40s, 50s, and 60s uh, were like in that regard. In the 1950s, what you saw was there were competing trends. So one of the things that was really important in the New Deal is that the rise of the Nazis and the rise of fascism around the world. You know, today we look at Europe and we say, oh, what are their privacy laws? In the 1930s, they looked at Europe and they said, oh, you know, what are their different political systems? You know, should we, are there things we can learn or copy? And, and so New Dealers thought of fascism as emerging from among many things, corporate concentration. And they wanted to address corporate concentration because they feared fascism emerging in the U.S. as well. And that philosophy of political threat from corporate concentration really dominated antitrust and anti-monopoly policy from the 1950s into the 1970s. You know, Nixon was, he was a new dealer. He was a corrupt new dealer, but he was a new dealer. Um, Eisenhower had a very aggressive antitrust uh, program But you also saw uh, in the 1950s a return of kind of the thinking of people like Al Smith, 
who really came from his thinking. He wasn't really a thinker. He was just a political operator. It really came from Teddy Roosevelt and and earlier the sort of the Walter Lippmann, the Thurston Veblens, the people who believed in a kind of state command and control model, quasi-socialist, uh, but more just centralizers. And that you saw um, happen on the left and the right. And on the left, you saw it through thinkers like John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a, in many ways a heroic um, anti-war leader in terms of the Vietnam War and military industrial posture. But he also was a, was a, um, a centralizer, and he thought that anti-monopolism was silly. Uh, he, he believed that monopolies were more progressive. And then there was Richard Hofstetter and what was called the Consensus School of Historians, who really took the battles from the 1870s and 80s until the 1930s, which were really were these battles about what industrial power and banking power would look like. And he said, well, that was all kind of a conspiracy theory and a set of myths. There really wasn't a money trust. There really wasn't banking power. It was actually just a bunch of farmers who were Anglo-Saxons who were afraid of losing their Anglo-Saxon status in a world, polyglot world of new immigrants. So they just used railroad power and banking power as kind of a fake myth to justify their own status anxiety. And that was really colored by the McCarthy period, right? So there was this tremendous fear of the Red Scare. Um, the Red Scare people went after Patman. They also went after, you know, leftists all over the place. They went after academics. And one of the responses was to say, well, you know, who are the antecedents to McCarthy and the McCarthyites? And they looked and they said, oh, well, well, really, this is coming from democracy itself. This is the, the populists and the small merchants and small business people. They are the McCarthyites. And they really demonized the idea of, of, of populism. And at the same time, John Kenneth Galbraith created this framework called Affluence. Right? So he published a book called The Affluence Society in 1958. And he said, America is just inevitably wealthy we have an endless productive capacity of jobs and stuff that's just coming out. And politics was based on scarcity, but now it's based on surplus. So what we have to figure out is how to distribute the bounty. And the politics of production, that's an old problem that we don't have to deal with anymore. Big corporations have solved that. Inequality is not, an, not a problem anymore. Corporate power is not a problem anymore. It's all run by these manager, managers, and these were the people who created kind of corporate liberalism, and they got rid of the anti-monopoly tradition on the left, or at least they started to in the 1950s, because the institutions were still controlled by people who had gotten their training in the 1930s and 40s, and that was true up until the 1970s. Then on the right, you saw a very similar new corporatist way of thinking, and this was the law and economics movement, which was started, people know of Milton Friedman, uh, he's sort of the most famous guy, maybe Robert Bork, but it was really started by this guy named Aaron Director in the late 1940s. And they started reconceptualizing, they wanted to overturn the New Deal. And so they started to con conceptualize how to do that. And they built up a set over the course of several decades, a set of legal tools and ideas to, to, to reorder our, our legal and policy environment. And they were also part of the Red Scare. I mean, the, the people that funded the... Um, initially the law and economics movement in Chicago. Also, it was this, this guy named uh, Harold Lunau in what was called the Volcker Fund. He also funded parts of the um, parts of the Red Scare as well. Huh. So just huh. an attack on economists and Keynesians. Um, so this is this interesting dynamic where the Red Scare is really, I reframe the Red Scare as kind of like, uh, it's not totally this, but it, it was a pushback on 
New Dealers, and particularly as it as it sort of it wasn't intended entirely this way, but it ended up really damaging the intellectual the the anti-monopolists. That's interesting. There were also I should add this there were also a whole series of antitrust cases that started in the late 40s because antitrust had been temporarily suspended during World War II and Truman made the decision to restart all these giant cases against General Motors and DuPont and A and P. And so the corporate world started to really reorganize its posture in the late 1940s and 50s. That's really interesting. So you have these strands of opposition that are building up, corporations getting more organized as as Truman and others are going after some of the big ones. You've got this sort of pro-corporatist liberalism in Galbraith and Hofstadter. Um, talk a little bit more about the law and economics movement. Um, I mean, this is a really, uh, you know, ha- this is the this is a set of ideas that I think, I mean, for a lot of those years, wouldn't it be safe to say that Aaron Director and the and the folks at the Chicago School who were doing this work, probably, I mean, they they wouldn't have been seen as very successful for like decades, but in fact, they were building something up that very much frames how we think about the economy now, right? Yeah, so they really had their coming out party in 1964 with the Goldwater campaign. Mm-hmm. So Goldwater, you know, the Republicans had rejected, like the law and economics movement had this weird relationship with big business where big business would give them some money through the American Enterprise Institute. But it was like, you know, your embarrassing aunt, right? You like love her, you know her, you know, you'll give her a hug, but like you don't want to be seen in public with her, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was the way that big business related to the law and economics movement. And so they would say things that were like ridiculous, like unions have too much power. Right? Uh-huh. And everybody was like, that's crazy. Um, uh, or they would say things like, you know, um, antitrust laws are too aggressive. And that was just like the big business people would look at that and they'd be like, I guess I would prefer not to have to deal with unions. And I guess I would prefer not to have to deal with antitrust suits. But that's a crazy world that we could never live in. So, you know, I'm going to live in my regulated channels and make my money and not rock the boat. Their coming out party was in 1964 with the Goldwater campaign, and the the Goldwater campaign was really run by the, – the policy shop was run by the law and economics movement. And Robert Bork, who was a student of Aaron Director, was important in that, although a lot of them – Milton Friedman was involved. A lot of them were involved. And this is because, for, for a couple of reasons. So the, the Aaron Director structured – or Bork did this actually – built a political coalition based on three essential groups. So first was big law. So the corporate law firms who understood all the antitrust suits in the 1930s and 40s and didn't like them. So the lawyers who had worked on Alcoa, the lawyers who had worked on the A&P. And, and, okay. um, the, uh, and just to give you a sense for how just to disrespected the law and economics movement worked, Robert Bork was – I think he was rejected for a job at Kirkland & Ellis when he applied, mm-hmm. um, which I, I got that rejection letter. It's in his archives. It's kind of funny. And um, uh, so, so he um, he gets a job at Yale, kind of accidentally, actually. So they they, um, and then uh, he writes an article where he opposes uh, Section Two of the Civil Rights Act, and he says racism is bad, and the public government shouldn't discriminate. However, if you own a hotel or you own a restaurant, you should be able to serve anybody you want, and not serve anybody you want, and the. The law that says that you cannot discriminate against black people is an an infringement of pri- of property rights, right? And this was his this was a way of um, 
an attack on a basic non-discrimination clause in Anglo-American property rights. Non-discrimination can be a core part of um, of, of how of how we organize sort of public utility-ish type of businesses or businesses with a public presence. And Robert Bork was saying, I oppose this. And this built a, uh, a Southern racist constituency, really an elite Southern racist constituency for Robert Bork and the law and economics movement. And Bork ended up helping Goldwater write his um, speeches around why he opposed the Civil Rights Act. And then he also had, uh, he started, they started building power with business leaders. So 1964, the Chicago School comes out of its fringe and doesn't dominate, but it becomes the loyal opposition, right? That's when Bork starts debating in grand ballrooms, the you know the major business uh, associations, and he doesn't have, they don't have to hide in the attic anymore. And that's mm-hmm. when the debate sort of starts, and the Supreme Court starts quoting them, mid 60s, um, and so they're they're having influence in the debate. But they're not winning. They're still losing, uh, but they're having influence. And that's when Bork starts – who's like – these guys – like Director basically understands something about the liberal mind. So Director understands that liberals – elite liberals are snobs. And one of the things about a snob is that if you expose that snob, they'll get really embarrassed. So if you just say, oh – you know, you bluff and you say, oh, you don't understand economics, the real science. Like a lot of liberals will get intimidated and be like, oh, you're right. And that's what Aaron Director did. Is he, he, he was very influenced by, HL, by, by Mencken, who was a great satirist. And he basically put various scholars up to discrediting like a core part, whatever, a whole set of precedents. And just to make fun, essentially make fun of the precedent as just ignorant, not understanding this science of economics. And – so he basically embarrassed the left into and liberals into getting rid of their view on on antitrust, and that started in uh, the 1960s when Bork was, you know, Bork was doing. He was kind of established. He became friendly with Don Turner, who was LBJ's antitrust chief, and you can see this kind of social climbing vibe going on, where Bork is being really nice to Don Turner, and Don Turner is getting criticized by the public for not. Uh, by muckrakers for not being aggressive enough on antitrust. And Bork is like, oh, they're so mean to you. You're really a good guy. And like he kind of starts drawing the antitrust establishment towards the snotty, like corporatist world being like, oh, the, the rabble, they don't understand how technical and hard this is. And then that takes over in the 1970s. What happens in 1970, and like there's this there's this view today that like there was this like right wing conspiracy that just kind of took over. But like that didn't make any sense in the 1970s. It's like that didn't make any sense to me because it's like it's not like people were greedier in the 1970s than they were in the 1960s or the 1950s or the 1940s. Like why did it work in the 1970s? And the reason, as it turns out, is because the New Deal started to collapse. Right. And that I have a chapter on the bankruptcy of most of the train system in 1970, which is called. It's the company called Penn Central, which was most of the Northeast train system. It was the largest bankruptcy in American history to that point, sort of the Enron of its day. Also the first bailout because the Fed had to actually bail out the banks that had lent to Penn Central. Uh, and then that was the first of many uh, problems in the 1970s, everything from you know Con Ed had huge problems. Con Ed's always having problems to uh, Pan Am to the bankruptcy of New York City. And this created a crisis where business leaders who before had said, 
yeah, I'll live in my regulated channel and like you guys can make your arguments and I agree with you, but I'm not going to rock the boat. All of a sudden they saw their buddies over at Penn Central like lose their shirts and they were like, oh my gosh, the problems that these guys have been talking about are here and we have to act. And that's when they started to organize politically. And that's when the debate really started about how to reorient uh, a kind of a fraying New Deal structure whose rules were had been, you know, there had been enough loopholes put in them and there was enough. Um, they hadn't necessarily been updated as much as they needed to consistent with new technologies. And so what do you do at that moment? And that was the debate in the 1970s. You're listening to Matt Stoller, author of the new book, Goliath, The 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. I'm Stacey Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Building Local Power. Our, our audience has really grown in the last couple of months, and that's thanks a lot to the ratings and reviews that you've been leaving us. Uh, in this age when everything is controlled by digital platforms, uh, whether or not people come across this podcast, have it show up in search results, has a lot to do with the number of ratings that it has. So thank you so much. If you'd like to learn more about our work, please visit our website at ilsr.org. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters, uh, such as the Hometown Advantage, if you're particularly interested in monopoly issues and independent business. And also consider making a donation to support ILSR's work. Thank you. So when you say the New Deal was starting to collapse, you mean partly that the laws themselves were no longer fully up to the task or that there have been sort of there have been cracks that had formed in them? Or do you mean sort of ideologically? What do you mean by that? So so there had been cracks in the in the in the laws. And this sort of the big one started in I think it was 1961. I have a, a series of chapters on the return of Wall Street. And um, it started in 1961 when, um, you know, the 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 regulators had very aggressive controls on the banking system, really since the 30s until the late 1950s, until 1961. And there were restrictions on, on how banks could get deposits. And deposits are like the rocket fuel for banking. And because of this, the big banks in New York, who had been able to get deposits from all over the world, were now restricted to getting deposits in their own areas. And so they were shrinking relative to everyone else. And National City or Citibank, which was run by this very aggressive guy named Walter Riston, who then became an enemy of Wright-Patman and they fought bitterly. He wanted to break this, these controls. And he did in 1961 with something called the Certificate of Deposit, which once again allowed banks to get uh, deposits from anywhere in the world. It, it, it gave them huge, huge rocket fuel. And it was a way of getting around what was essentially Glass-Steagall. So Glass-Steagall's weakened really starting from 1961 until it was finally repealed in 1999, although there were moments when it was strengthened as well. And then the 1961 um, rocket fuel led to the go-go 1960s. And the go-go 1960s had very strong antitrust laws, but you did see Wall Street start to kind mm -hmm. of um, play play around again. That's when mutual funds started developing, which were just an old 1920s model. Oh, they were regulated this time, but like an old 1920s model. And then you saw the beginnings of private equity, which in the 1960s were called conglomerates. And conglomerates, there had been conglomerates before, but like these new conglomerates were really just the early financialization, buying companies so that you can juice your earnings 
and you know use the stock market like a higher stock market to buy other companies and this was so i have a whole thing on you know conglomerates and how that brought you know there were all these eth sort of sort of quasi ethnic conflicts going on it was sort of fascinating but 1970 like uh, in these regulated industries and like the train system was not regulated particularly well um for for political reasons but um but the train you know the the leaders of penn central we're like, you know what? We don't want to run a train any a train system anymore. It's heavily reg regulated. It's annoying. We have to do work. We have to do maintenance. Let's take all of our cash and uh, try to become a conglomerate. And so they did that, and it was of course a disaster. And there was all sorts of self-dealing. They they started. They tried to start a private airline, which was illegal at the time, and they had like basically hired sort of sex workers to as stewardesses like it was really bad mm -hmm. like the kind of like dirty management stuff they were doing there was accounting fraud and there were problems with regulations and there was problems with like with unions and it was it, there was it was just a mess and it, it all collapsed in 1970s um and like one of the reasons that the regulations didn't work is because of the emergence of trucking which was a competitor to railroads and the the you know the highways had been uh, built in the 1950s. And then the New Deal, one of the things that it did is, is it redistributed wealth in the country. It got rid of regional inequality. It moved production from the Northeast to all over the country. And so the Penn Central, which was predicated upon a rich industrial Northeast, the, the structure changed, but the pricing laws that they had to obey didn't. So it just became less and less profitable. And the they didn't update it. So there were real problems there. And what they did instead of updating the law, I mean, but of course the management of Penn Central still wanted to pay dividends. And, and so like when they were like, oh, we need to charge higher prices, Congress was like, well, you're still paying dividends. So it was like, it was it was a, it was bad faith on, on the part of management, but it collapsed, right? And there were, so so the, the CDs like weakened banking rules and there were like regulators kind of looked the other way. And then the, the train system collapsed and you saw problems kind of across the board. And really what you needed, well, and that's the debate in the 1970s. And what do you do when you have a financial system, which is once again spinning out of control? The Penn Central, you needed a, a bailout of the banks that had lent to them through an unregulated shadow banking instrument called the commercial credit. Uh, uh, I think it was commercial paper. And then in 1974, you saw a bank using this other unregulated instrument which was called uh, the euro dollar market and you saw uh, real estate investment trusts had a huge liquidity crisis you essentially saw the same things that were going on in the 1920s but only in this time this time every every time there was a problem instead of letting the system collapse the fed bailed them out and backstopped that credit instrument which um, meant that there wasn't a deep depression there was a quick recession and bankers started to realize they could just lend and they wouldn't be held accountable for it. And so you saw um, the effect that this has is it creates inflation, huge amounts of, of inflation instead of a deflation. And so that moment when you, you see like all of a sudden the financial like cash management in businesses becomes much more important than actually running the business because you're just trying to predict the, what the prices are going to be. You see this slowdown of productivity and, uh, and, and you see a crisis as people are like, our system is clearly not working. And then that's when you have a political debate. And there were three different wings of this political debate. You still had Wright Patman, who by the 19, in 1961 or two, I think, he um, he became the chair of the banking committee. And he was still the chair up until 1975. And 
he and old populist Phil Hart was another one. They said, you know, we need to redo the New Deal effectively. We need to re-regulate the banking system and we need to break up basically all big businesses because big businesses are causing huge problems across our economy once again. Then you had the law and economics movement who by this time had become very embedded with big business. Big business was funding them and there were all of these kind of exchanges back and forth. And they said, no, no, the problem is these controls on concentrated capital. That's what's causing inflation. That's what's causing all of these bankruptcies. And then you had this huge swing group in the middle, which were the new baby boom generation. Hmm. Where are they going to go? And they had built themselves off of the frame of affluence that they were reading as kids in the 1950s and 60s. You know, it was hard to go into a college dorm room in the 1960s and not see one of Galbraith's books, right? So this frame of affluence and the irrelevance of political economy led them and then anti-war counterculture stuff because because Galbraith was very important in the counterculture as were the kind of C. Wright Mills and a, a whole series of, of people who were who were who did not particularly care about monopoly and didn't like small business people. Um, so they, these people in the 1970s, they were led by Ralph Nader, who really reshaped. Uh, he took Galbraith's concept and he said, politics is not about citizenship. And this is the fundamental change that happens in the 1970s. Uh, prior to the 1970s, people thought about politics as the act of being a citizen in a society, which involved how we produce things and how we trade and also how we consume. But it was being a citizen in a society. Ralph Nader and Galbraith, under Galbraith's influence, reshaped politics towards being a consumer. So we thought, well, production doesn't matter, citizenship doesn't matter, consumerism matters. And the consumer rights movement is the dominant left-wing trend in the 1970s. And so that's the, that's the third wing. And in this debate between the corporate guys, the law and economics guys, who say we need to make things more efficient by taking controls off of corporate capital or concentrated capital, and the, the Patman guys who had you know, were perceived to have gotten us into Vietnam and, it, and you know, we're, we're, we're not, you know, we're not necessarily perceived to be always on the right side on civil rights or environmentalism. Not, not necessarily true, but that was sort of the perception. They were, they were kind of black and white TV in a color TV world. The, the sort of consumer rights guys drifted over to concentrated capital. And actually Nader was the guy that said, we need to get rid of regulations on airlines. He was very aggressive on that. He said, we need to get rid of what they, they called them cartel regulations, um, you know, on trucking and banking and all of these things that Jimmy Carter eventually did. And Jimmy Carter was very tight with Nader. That came from the consumer rights movement. And it was it sort of cemented an alliance between the consumer rights and the baby boom generation and the law and economics movement. And they crushed the um, they crushed the anti-monopolists. And so mm -hmm. this this became like the way I storify this is I, I talk about how in 1975, Wright Patman, who had been fighting against monopolists for, you know, 40 plus years and actually was the first Democrat to investigate Watergate. Right. He didn't just impeach Nick uh, uh, Mellon. He he in 1972, he was tracking down Nixon. Right. And he basically without him, the, the impeachment wouldn't or the um, Watergate wouldn't have happened. That scandal. Uh, this new generation of Watergate babies, they're called Watergate babies, a huge number of Democrats enter into the House and Senate and state legislators all over the world, or sorry, not all over, all of the country in 1974 as a reaction against Nixon. And this is actually Clint, Bill Clinton's first 
election was in 1974 for Congress. He didn't win, but he came very close. He's a Watergate baby. That's that the Clinton generation. Um, they come into Congress and they're mad. Uh, they want to do something about you know Nixon. They want to do something about the war in Vietnam. But these are both over. So they turn on Patman and they get rid of him from the chair of the banking committee. They're like, he's too old. It's, that's not he's not in touch with modern concepts anymore. And they also get rid of one of his strong allies, this woman named Leonore Sullivan. And that's the revolution. That's the intellectual revolution in the Democratic Party when they turn on Patman because they're like, he doesn't understand modern economics anymore. And then they're beset with all these problems like the bankruptcy of New York City and so on and so forth. And so one of the other things that they do in 1975 is they get rid of the fair trade laws, right? So resale price maintenance. That's the Consumer Goods Pricing Act of 1975. And that opens the door for Walmart, which, you know, at the beginning of the decade has, you know, $20 million of revenue. And by 1980, it's a, it has a billion dollars of revenue. And by 1985, Sam Walton is the richest man in the, in the country. And that's, that was the doing of the Watergate baby class who were under the influence of the consumer rights movement and the law and economics movement and had sort of turned away from anti-monopolism. So the, the revolution of the party started in 1975. And then later on, what I noticed is that they got – the Democrats weren't corrupt. They just believed in all these weird ideas. They hated small business because of their intellectual training. And then effectively after Patman, you know, he dies shortly there after he's overthrown. And then like in the 1980s, when, when Reagan – you know, Jimmy Carter tries his whole, you know, austerity politics. He's sort of the first neoliberal president. It doesn't work. Reagan comes in. And Reagan really is the guy who brings, you know, he 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 brings law and economics movement into positions of authority all over the government and into the judiciary. But by this time, antitrust is kind of already a dead letter intellectually, right? Cuz the people from World War II are dead and you know, all the liberals, including Don Turner, you know, there's this moment when he flips. They're all just like, oh, that antitrust stuff, that's all musty old nonsense. We're in the computer age, right? Um, they like say that. Like, by, by the way, all of the stuff that we're talking about today, like, it's not like millennials invented this. Like, the boomers were doing it. Like, it's it's kind of embarrassing, um, but hilarious. So uh, anyway, so in the 1980s, um, you see this massive concentration of corporate power, and it's like, but you also see these huge expansions of these retail chains and shopping malls. So the shopping mall is kind of the iconic moment of the decade. And like the 80s is like the worst of conservatism and liberalism, right? Because you have corporate concentration, right, which is the Aaron director break from the traditional anti-monopoly conservatism. And then you have the shopping mall, which is like the gross perversion of the consumer rights movement, right? Mm -hmm. Consumerism. Um, and like it's it's gross. And, you know, Wall Street is booming and Silicon Valley starts to boom as like – you know, the technology, which it, it had been a place of high technology for a while, and it was actually created by antitrust suits and new dealers. But then all of a sudden, they're able to monopolize key segments of the personal computer. And so that creates enormous amounts of, of, uh, uh, of extracted wealth. And so that's when you see the, you know, Apple's the first big company that produces a lot of millionaires. That's in the early 1980s. And, and then... What I noticed is – so I did a chapter on Michael Milken who's kind of like – he really re reconstructs the robber baron 
structure, the Mellons and the Morgans, that whole way of running the world. And it's explicit, like the Drexel Morgan, which is, or Drexel Burnham Lambert, which is their investment bank. They explicitly say that. They say, our goal is to build the robber barons of the future. And they succeed. They succeed spectacularly, as we have, you know, all experienced. Totally. And I'm sorry to keep talking about this, but it's just such a fascinating story. And like a lot of the guys that Michael Milken stakes are, or, or trains, like the Carl Icons of the world, like they're all Trump guys now, mm-hmm. right? Like, so like the culture like of like chip on your shoulder, hating on the corporate waspy New Deal establishment, like, and then they all become billionaires. They still have that chip on their shoulder and that's like the Trump people, right? So he basically creates through what is effectively a giant Ponzi scheme in the junk bond market. Uh, he effectively creates the the private equity industry, it was at the time it was called leverage buyouts. And I noticed like the Democrats who were confused in the 1970s. So there's this thing called the Predators Ball, which are these like parties for these M&A specialists with like cocaine and hookers and like deals like it's Wall Street right. in the 80s. Right. And aptly and, named. Aptly named. Right. Well, I mean, it wasn't called that. It was had some boring name. But Connie Brock, who's this wonderful journalist who did he she wrote a book called the, the Predators Ball. It was nicknamed uh-huh. the Predators Ball. And a lot of these guys actually got their training in the conglomerate era of the 1960s. And then the party coming out party was in the 80s. So they also invited politicians. And it was like the new poli- the new cool politicians of the Democratic parties. Like they were the guests at the Predators Ball. And then I noticed like a bunch of the Democrats who were confused in the 70s, all of a sudden they were showing up on Michael Milken's payroll or on the payroll of like big banks. And that was the story of modern, like that was the turn in the Democratic Party. One of the things I really hope your book does is reconnect progressives and Democrats with the fact that small business used to be a core part of their constituency. You know, I was really like, I went to college uh, in Minnesota and lived out there for like 10 years and studied history. My studying of history sort of ended mostly around World War II. So those like later decades of the 20th century, you know, I didn't get anything on those. Yeah, the rest of those decades, you know, trash. Yeah, I mean, it just, for whatever reason, <laughs> this kidding. was never in the classes, right? Um, but, oh, like, funny. you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, all the stuff that was going on with, with these farmer populists across North Dakota, um, you know, taking control of the state government and creating a, a, a publicly owned bank. Um, these movements across Minnesota uh, of, of uh, farmers, small business people, and uh, timber workers united against the timber companies who had screwed over everybody. Uh, in various ways, you know, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, right? You know, this this constituency that was was small business people and labor uh, together. And that's really the basis of, of the New Deal. And and then so, you know, I graduated from college in 96, you know, Bill Clinton's president. Um, and obviously the Democratic Party, you know, the, the sort of dominant wing of the of the Democratic Party is completely in bed with big business and with Wall Street. You know, Clinton overturns the the, the remnants of Glass-Steagall and, and so on and so forth. But the other the thing that was confusing to me is that the, the to what ex, what existed for an opposition to you know a, a, a left wing opposition to Bill Clinton um, and that part of the party was a sort of socialist opposition that was just as antagonistic, if not more so towards small business. And it took me a long time to sort of understand, you know, then you had the U S chamber of commerce basically saying, Oh, small business, you know, their political interests are right in line with big business. You know, that was a line that they sold to all of us. You know, people really believed that. And it took me a long time to figure out that the Democrats effectively kicked small business out of the coalition. I mean, that's how that happened. They abandoned them. 
That's, I mean, that's right. And so, wait, so Hubert Humphrey, he's a Minnesota guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so Hubert Humphrey is is this one of these great heroes of American politics who is really treated, I think he's been treated badly uh, by uh, by the baby boom generation and then by historians. He was, um, you know, he had this great New Dealer. He stood up for uh, for civil rights in 1948 in the Democratic Convention. But he was also a great economic populist. Uh, he was disliked because he was LBJ's VP and would not break on the Vietnam War, although privately I think he was not happy about it. But he was a pharmacist. He was an independent pharmacist. And pharmacists were such a big part of the – and small business people were such a big part of Wright Patman's politics and Hubert Humphrey's politics and the politics of people out west uh, because they were, they were civic leaders and they were, uh, they were running – uh, independent businesses, and this was actually not just true. This, this was true in the South. Um, in among uh, a lot of the civil rights movement was was run and supported by independent black-owned businesses. You know, the, the, the funeral parlors and and beauty salons and um, at, at supermarkets or, or markets, things like that. And that's because they uh, they couldn't be you, when when you run a small business. I mean, you saw this with Harvey Milk too. He ran a camera store in the Castro. Uh, when you run your own business, if you can if you can make money off of it, and you're you're not dependent on you're dependent on your customers obviously, but if you you're you're not dependent on a boss, and so you can build an independent living. And most business people just want to make some money, but if you want to do politics, you can do politics. If you want to support your community, you can support your community. And this was a core part of how Democrats thought about politics. It really gets back to you know the Jeffersonian view of the yeoman farmer, which was really updated by Brandeis, um, and then was updated again, I think, in the, the 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 civil rights movement. And that idea of the independent citizen is gets to the basic question of can we have a democracy? And I think what happened in the 1970s, when both the left and the right flipped against the against small business people was that we said that democracy is not really important. What we need is technocrats to run things on behalf of consumers. And the right said, well, we should have people that are good at generating cash run be those technocrats. And the left said, we should have people who have more of a social redistributionist bent run those uh, be those technocrats. And so debates in the 1980s and 1990s really revolved around, do we raise marginal tax rates on the wealthy? Do we have more or less social welfare? How do we redistribute the, you know, quote unquote gains from trade? All of the questions that come after the politics of production have been debated and decided. And what we saw with the, you know, this, they, they had this assumption that banks and corporations were just these neutral, apolitical, almost scientific institutions, kind of like the weather, right? Yet saying, hey, we should break up a company or we should restructure a market would be like pointing at a cloud and saying, make that cloud rain. It just doesn't – maybe you need rain, but it doesn't make any sense to say that. It might be a problem, but it's not a political problem. So uh, when we saw – what happened is the financial crisis really showed, I think, I think that our corporations and our banks are highly political institutions and the structure that they – exist in, it's highly politicized, and the rules and markets 
they're political institutions that like we must act to do politics to structure our society and our trading relationships. You obviously saw that in the 1990s, um, but I don't think it became a, a, a kind of a popular consensus view until the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to ask you about is is about how race and gender fits into this narrative. Um, you know, I, I think the sort of story of we had, um, I think for, you know, the story of, of this period in the 30s, 40s, and 50s where we, we did a lot more to control corporate power, we had more um, economic liberty, uh, more local power. It doesn't, you know, for like, there's no way that I want to go back to the 1950s, right? Like I have, as, as a woman, I have far more economic freedom now than I would have then. And so there's this way in which that story doesn't quite like resonate. It doesn't quite line up with people's actual experience um, because a majority of the country, whether people of color or women, were very much marginalized um, from, you know, having uh, sort of having having a proper role in the economy and in politics at that time. So how do you think about that in terms of how we learn from this history and then like where we go from here? Well, that that is a, an, an incredibly important question, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'll give you the conceptual answer, you know, what I uh, kind of what I learned. Um, so I look at the New Deal and I, I think it was an anti-racist set of institutions that was grafted onto a country that was incredibly racist and became less so over time. So the 1920s was one of the more racist and anti-Semitic decades in American history. Uh, and I look at a guy, there's a character in my book called Clifford Durr, who was very important in the buildup to defeat the Nazis. And he had to fight the domestic robber barons to do that. But he, he came from, uh, he was from Montgomery, Alabama, and sort of from a patrician family. And he was a mild segregationist when he joined the New Deal. And then he worked in the New Deal for quite some time. And eventually he was put on the FCC as a commissioner, but he refused to take a loyalty oath to, um, he just opposed it on on uh, moral grounds. And, and then he started, so he had, to, he had to resign. And then he started representing people who were attacked by, as in the witch hunt, the communist witch hunts. And a lot of them were just black employees who were fired from the federal government. And then he went back to um, he went back to Alabama, and he again just represented uh, as a lawyer. Uh, he represented. He said, "I'll take all customers." And so, you know, white people didn't want to use him, and so he ended up having a mostly black clientele. Eventually, got involved in the civil rights movement, and he and his wife Virginia. Uh, ultimately became very involved as sort of the part of the legal architects of the Rosa Parks bus boycott. So uh, that story, um, that path of someone like uh, Clifford Durr, like changing, right, as a person, but also, you know, using legal tools to address corporate concentration and really, which is just scaled bullying and saying, we're going to address other forms of, of bullying. I think that like shows that you know these struggle the struggle for democracy is tied to the struggle for who in a democracy gets to govern and that's i think the core of it is there are always two questions in america the first question is can citizens in a democracy govern a democracy can we rule ourselves as in as citizens and that's what the question the new dealers were asking in the 1930s the second question is who is a citizen right can you be a citizen if you're a woman? Can you be a citizen if you're black? Can you be a citizen, you know, if you're gay? 
And that's the question that the new dealers didn't start asking really. I mean, they wanted to ask it, but they, they didn't start asking it until the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But if you don't ask the first question, which is, can we have a democracy? But you ask the second question, then what you end up with is a kind of multiracial oligarchy. And I think that that's the challenge that we're confronting right now. Um, and so I think both questions are, are, are really important. And I wouldn't say we, you know, the idea is not to go back to the 1950s, you know, when you would have to ask your husband if you needed, you wanted to get credit, right, for, to buy something. Um, or or the, the idea is how do we ask and answer both of those questions in a way that guarantees, you know, liberty for all? Writing this book was, I assume, took sort of years of research, um, and I assume was done with a mind towards this moment. Like, why is this? Why is this set of questions and this history that you wanted to unearth important now? So, what? How do you think about that? What is the outlook for the moment that we're in? Right. So I started doing this research because I was involved as a staffer, congressional staffer, during the bailouts, and I was like, why are we doing all of these things that are really harmful? You know, I don't think I didn't think Democrats were bribed to do it to concentrate wealth and power. I didn't think there was corruption going on. I mean, there's a little bit, but there's always corruption. I thought there was like a set of bad ideas that people had, you know, a set of stories in their heads that were weird, and I didn't understand those stories, and I didn't understand what they were reacting against. So the research was like, what are they thinking? And then I had to go back to the movement that they or the people they taught reacted against, which was Patman's movement. And then I had to go back to how Patman, what Patman was reacting against, which was Mellon. And that was the book. And so the question that I had that I tried to answer is why did Democrats with power screw up so badly? And how can we not do that again? And I think that that's a really important question to have right now, because we see a lot of the same trends, the rise in autocratic and fascist movements all over the world, corporate concentration, regional inequality, uh, despair, and also this amazing moment of potential hope and, and, and solutions. And I think the lessons, the heritage that we have as Americans and just as people, um, you know, we have a tradition of opposing concentrated corporate power. It is our birthright. And we should we should know about it and we should use it so that we can have liberty for all. Matt, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And again, you guys are the best. Matt Stoller's new book is Goliath, the 100 year war between monopoly power and democracy. Matt is a fellow at the Open Markets Institute. You can buy his book at any independent bookstore in the country or online at IndieBound.org. If you buy it from IndieBound, your purchase will go to your nearest locally owned bookstore that does e-commerce. Um, and of course, it might be available at other uh, booksellers as well, but those are the ones we'd encourage you to try first. Uh, thanks again, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it and sharing it with your friends. This show is edited by Lisa Gonzalez and produced by Lisa Hibbamaray and Zach Freed. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Power.